Welcome back to the podcast. This is Ryan Williams, host of Stories from the Influencer Economy, The Rhino Lab, all about reaching your next opportunities. This week, I welcome Dan Ariely for episode 100. Want to welcome everyone back to the podcast and remind you to please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. It helps new people find it on iTunes or anywhere you listen. Also, go to my website, InfluencerEconomy.com, if you'd like my free chapter of the book, The Influencer Economy, How to Launch Your Idea, Collaborate with Influencers, and Thrive and Make Money in the Digital Age. Check it out, InfluencerEconomy.com, for a free chapter of my book. Dan Ariely, welcome, welcome. For those who don't know, Dan is a behavioral economics expert he describes things in plain English that affect our behaviors every day. He has prolific TED Talks that have been watched millions and millions of times. He's the best-selling author of Irrationally Yours, Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. When you're not writing and, and uh, publishing TED Talks, you are a teacher at the Duke Fuqua School of Business in Durham, North Carolina. And your new book is called Payoff, The Hidden Logic That Shapes Our Motivation. Welcome to the podcast, Dan Ariely. Hello, hello. Dan, how's it going? Very well. Nice to be here. Super excited you're here. And uh, what I love to talk about, you know, with your book is, you know, and you've, you've written many bestsellers. It's kind of like how you use those skills of understanding how people are irrational. And irrationality is definitely something you're known for because... Even your email signature says irrationally yours. Yeah. Um, so why did you, you know, pick the field that you're in as far as you know the overall behavioral economics, if if, if that's what you call it? Yeah. So, you know, my, you know, I, I think that everybody has a random story to how they got to the field that they are at. I don't think ever, anybody kind of wake up when they're kids and say I want to do X and then become exactly that. Um, in my, in my particular story, I was in hospital for a very long time, for almost three years. I got uh, badly injured. And actually, the hospital gave me lots of insights about life, but it also showed me lots of things that I thought the doctors were doing in the wrong way. And it, it ranged from how they were used to remove our bandages, to how they used to take our blood, to the, some of the operations they were doing, to how they were giving us medication. All kinds of things like that. As a patient, I just did not see eye to eye with them about the, the procedure. And, you know, it was it was about looking at the small details of how things were carried out and saying, I don't think those small details are, are right. And when I left the hospital, I started doing experiments on all kinds of things. I learned I learned about the experimental approach and I started doing experiments. And my first experiments were actually about pain. And I showed that the way that they used to remove bandages were not were not right. But but later on and over the years, I did lots of experiments, and of course not just about the hospital, about all kinds of cases in which people have good intentions, right? You have and was this were you in Israel at the time when you were burned? Yeah, yeah. I was I was injured when I was uh, almost eighteen uh, in Israel, and I spent there. Uh, a very long time in, in hospital and rehabilitation. And, you know, I, I, if, if you look at the world and you say, what, what are the big source of misery? 
uh, it's basically us, right? So most, you know, from time to time there's like an earthquake or a tsunami or some terrible things that are happening from the outside. But lots of the misery is man, man-made. Uh, even even in if you look at the mortality rate and you, you look at how often we accelerate our death by things like obesity and diabetes and smoking and texting and driving and so on, it's, it's, it's quite incredible. And it's really about not thinking very carefully, uh, not thinking about the details of life, and then designing things in a way that tempts us to, to misbehave. And I, after kind of figure out some things about pain and what the nurses were right about and wrong about in terms of pain, I started thinking about all kinds of ways and we're just misguided that, that we think we're doing good, but in fact, in fact, we're not. And I've been doing experiments for now over 20 years, looking at all kinds of areas of life where we think we're doing good, but we're actually do, um, doing some harm. And so when you, were you questioning what the nurses' procedures were, like taking off your Band-Aids and applying yeah, ointments? So, and, and, and moreover, were you being verbal when you did this and telling them your oh. opinion? <laughs> I was very verbal. <laughs> you know, uh, I, was, I was very verbal, and, and they were very verbal back to tell me that I'm wrong. Uh, you know, they, they were not very happy to, to get my opinion. And, you know, some of it is, is right. I mean, they, they work in a very stressful, difficult uh, place. It's not easy to be a nurse in the burn department. So they're thinking, oh, great, we got to go back to room two or three right now. And that's it, right. Another one. Ariel another is going to give us an those, earful here. Another one of those guys. Um, <laughs> I. I even and they're just trying to do was, their job. I mean, but it's more procedural, right? Where they're right. they're yeah, told yeah. what to do. It's not like they have the autonomy to change the procedure. Oh, I think I think they had the autonomy. They had lots of autonomy to do things. But um, f- f- I'll, I'll tell you another story. I um, I ac- asked them to start bringing me um, journals on uh, burns and plastic surgery, and the, the doctors did not want to share any academic. Uh, uh, journals with me but but I got somebody to to bring me uh, journals and and I saw an operation that they were doing I saw a, a paper on an operation for breast uh, um, reconstruction where they where they took this silicon balloon and they put it under the skin and then over four months they slowly inflated it not with water but with uh, saline with IV fluid and I said you know that's a great way to grow skin because when you just when you just take skin from a regular like okay so 70% of my body was burned you need to take some skin from the healthy parts and put them on the un- unhealthy parts because when you have a little burn it would like heal a, like a skin graft Exactly. So when you have a little burn, it would heal by itself or a scratch. But if it's deep and very large, it will take, I, I, I don't know if it could ever heal, but, but if it would, it would take years. So what you would do, uh, what they would do is they would take something that looks like a cheese slicer. They would put me to sleep and they would kind of slice a very thin layer from the parts of my body that were uh, healthy. Oh, wow. And then they would put it through a little machine that puts holes in it. And then they would take a metal brush and they would brush the, the, the burned flesh until it started bleeding. So oh, it no. was kind of alive. Oh, you know, this was all when I was asleep. Yeah, and I then, remember I, I laughed because you said that you look forward to surgery. I read that in your book yes. because they gave you anesthesia. 
That's right. Um, and, this, this is excruciatingly painful. Yeah, yeah. So, so anesthesia. By the way, you know, now these days they take people with my kind of injury and just put them in induced coma for a few months, which I think is just the, the, the right approach. But uh, at, at that time, the, the drugs and the ability to do induced coma was just, were just not as good. But, but anyway, so, so and then they would put the, the, the skin that they took out of the healthy parts on the, the parts that were, uh, had no skin. And 10 days later, the skin that was healthy would, and, and they took some, the very top layer off it would grow the top layer. It was still red, but they could take it again and again and again. So my, my upper thighs and stomach w- were not burned. So every two weeks, about every two weeks, they would put me to sleep. They would take the cheese slicer. They would take uh, the top layer of that skin away. They would, you know, uh, rub the the place where there were deep wounds, and they would transplant the skin, and they would keep on uh, keep on doing this over and over. But the problem is that thick, thin skin at that level it becomes very scarred. It shrinks very much. It doesn't have the elasticity for regular skin. But when I read this story about the breast transplants, you basically grow healthy skin. You just kind of inflate it like a pregnant woman. You're oh, yeah. Slowly, 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 you get more skin. So I wanted them to do it to me as well. I said, let's transplant a few balloons under the healthy part of my skin. Let them grow for three to four months, and then we'll we'll have extra extra skin, and we can use it. It'll be thick skin, not just the thin one. And and they didn't want to do it, and I argue with them and argue with them, and finally they agreed to do it, but only if my father would bring those uh, silicon balloons from Japan because that's where they were um, manufacturing them. So my father uh, imported these balloons from Japan and. They transplant, they transplant three of those uh, under my skin, and four, five months later, I had a very successful operation uh, doing that. Interestingly, wait, so um, you just you presented the idea to them, like yeah, and I they, presented the idea, and I insisted, and I insisted. It's like an experimental. I, <laughs> I mean, you're 18 and, at the time. I imagine, like, yeah, you didn't you didn't have your PhD, or you weren't doing TED talks back then. No, this was probably I was 19. It was it was you know I I, I had already some time. Uh, but I think that, so I'm, I'm almost 50 now, but maybe four years ago, so you know, quite a <laughs> quite few years later, uh, I, I was back in the burn department for something something different, and I talked to the head of the, the burn department, and I reminded them of this, and he said that now they do it to almost every patient. Oh, wow. It became a, it became a procedure. So... You know, I don't think that you should listen to every patient. I don't think they should have listened to me about everything. But, but, but you know, one of the main insights in social science is that the small details matter. And, and I think that when you're a patient, every small detail matters to you. And, and there's, a, there's a power of observation that comes from doing every, looking at every, every specific thing. Uh, I also, uh, sometimes when people ask me about user testing, I often recommend using people with disabilities. Uh, so, you know, I have, I have lots of disabilities with my hands. And, you know, young young people who program and think about how to use an interface, 
they don't have problems moving their hands. Right. So for them, if you have to click once or twice or a small button or a big button, you know, it's not a big deal. But for somebody like me, I think about every key press and every mouse click and every every movement. And this detailed view, uh, I think, really help improve products to, to a high degree in the same way that it, it gave me some insights about all kinds of things in hospital. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you have on your website at danarielli.com a whole section on how you don't use email. And <laughs> Miles, our mutual friend that introduced us, he yep. was actually, he forwarded me a note from you when he first mentioned that we were going to connect that you left an audio response to email. And you wouldn't know this by watching your TED Talks, but you have limited use in one hand and three finger use. Is that right in, an, in another hand? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, sorry, go ahead. And, and if you go on my website, I actually uh, have a tool that I use to send uh, voice memos, and it's uh, free to use. Uh, so I made it. But if you, if you download this tool, it's called Veil, uh, and it only works on the Mac. I'm sorry if you're not a Mac user. Um, but, but if you look at that tool, you could see how it really tries to minimize uh, key presses. So... Uh, you open your, I open my email and I have the veil tool on the side and I click one time to start recording and I click one other time and it takes the voice file, attaches it to his email, sends the email and uh, archives it, right? So it's basically everything there is about minimizing uh, movement and this, I, I think you get, you get something about this kind of cost of doing it when you when you talk to people who are challenged or limited. Uh, in the same way, by the way, uh, I don't know if you have any friends who are chefs. Uh, I, I do have one friend who's a chef. Uh, kitchens are amazing because they're very tight places with often lots of people and they're, they're working in amazing speed trying to deliver food very, very quickly at high amounts, uh, plus heat and, and danger. And you look at how they function, and it's amazing. It's just like everything is coordinated, and there's no wasted movement, and everything that needs to be pre-prepared is pre-prepared. It's, it's, just, it's just tremendous. And I think what what chefs do is, is over time, they have this sensitivity to... Uh, movement and time and speed and of course wasted ingredients and so on and, and they work in an incredibly efficient uh, way and when you take people who are under scarcity whether it's pain or difficulty or uh, challenges of movement or lack of time uh, it's often people who are actually quite good in developing products for everybody even if you're not uh, under stress because they, they look at lots of the things and try to create much higher efficiency. So, for example, if you're blind and your sense of hearing picks up, is that what you're saying, where people acquire complementary efficiencies so, so, because they're so, maybe limited? So, so it's not just complementary. It's that you start thinking about the details, right? So if your vision is low, um, you, you pay attention to lots of things that if your vision is good, you don't pay attention to like the size of the font 
or the contrast. So uh, let's not talk about people who are, you know, 100% blind. But if you if you have challenges in eyesight, you would think about lots of things that you know young 25 year old uh, kids would would never think about. If if moving your hands is more painful, you would think more carefully about. Like, you know, if you think about something like computer mice, I, I've used many of them, and I'm very sensitive to which one is high quality or low quality. And and I'm very sensitive to this because I pay attention to those kind of things. It's it's hard for me to move things. So so everything becomes more salient. I think that sometimes an injury, maybe that's the right way to say it, sometimes an injury or disability is a magnifying glass on something that would bother everybody, but not everybody is as aware of what's really bothering them. Interesting. So then when you talk about irrationality and you know where you, you found your inspiration and curiosity when you were in the hospital and the detail you're talking about that you pay attention to in your research, why, like you mentioned before, alcohol or smoking, why do we why are we irrational beings? And like, what, what kind of research could people gain from this conversation that maybe applies to building a product or launching an online business or doing something different, taking a risk that maybe getting unexpected consequences helps people make things? Yeah, so, so I think that if you think about kind of the nature of human nature and irrationality, I think the basic realization is that we were kind of designed and evolved in a very different environment, right? If you think about something like uh, the savanna, and you think about being afraid of tigers, and you think about eating in an environment where you don't have much food. So, so like, just think about eating, right? If, if you basically kind of evolutionary grew up in an environment that had scarcity, that there was not a lot of food, Nature would want to design you such that every time you find food, you would sit there and eat the whole thing, right? You would not say, oh, let me eat a little bit and, and get more later. But, but we don't have that environment anymore, right? What, what environment we have now? Right now we have an environment of abundance. Right. And, and, and even, even if you're uh, poor... Uh, you certainly don't have abundance in the standard uh, sense of the world, but but the f- you probably have enough Dunkin' Donuts. The the things that you probably have a lot of are probably the things that are incredibly uh, unhealthy. There's a Starbucks in- on every corner in Los Angeles. An incredibly high calorie, yeah. <laughs> right. So 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 what what you want is is to is to think about if we grow up. If we grew up in this uh, environment and we're designed for that, what does it mean about us today? What does it mean about this idea that that when we start, when we see food around us, we can't help it? We have this inclination, we have this tendency to just want to eat everything that we see, right? So that's that's basically the... The, the notion. Now, we have to understand that we have all kinds of basic instincts like this, and these basic instincts get us to get us to, you know, make all kinds of mistakes. Um, so, so we do. Um, 
we overeat, we undersave, we don't think about tomorrow, we don't exercise, we text and drive and so on. Or think about another example, money. Money is a very strange representation of, of a good, right? We, uh, money is a recent invention. Uh, if I ask you, would you prefer an apple to an orange? In English, there's this expression that says when they, people talk about a difficult decision, they say it's like comparing apples to oranges. Right. Well, you know, comparing apples to oranges is actually quite easy. What's, what's hard to do is to think about money. So if I ask you, uh, you, you know, do you prefer an apple to orange, people have no problem answering it. Nobody stands by the fruit platter wondering what's the right thing to do. But if I ask you, is an apple worth a dollar, a dollar fifty, a dollar twenty-five, seventy-five cents, and so on. That one you don't know. So, so we've created money, but as a as a substitute for goods, right? Money, money is worth whatever you can you can buy with it. But we haven't evolved in an environment where this was something something basic. So, so what happened is that. We don't know how to think about money. So what happens? We make we make lots of mistakes when it comes to uh, to money. We we don't think about it the right way. We succumb to all kinds of uh, small uh, sh- shortcuts, uh, and basically we 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 fail and we fail repeatedly. Um, I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, in in financial thinking, there's something called the pain of paying. Have you heard of this expression? I have not, no. Okay. So so imagine that tonight you go to dinner. Imagine it's an expensive dinner. It's like $120. And you can either pay with cash or with credit card. Which one of those will feel worse? Right? Uh, the, the cash. Yeah. Credit yeah. card, is. it feels easier. It's a status. It's a... It's convenience. So cash it's, is hard to, to give away mentally. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. So people feel that paying in cash would be more difficult and painful than paying, than paying with a credit card. Now, now, why? Part of the story is the pain of paying. And part of the story is the timing of consumption and payment. So, so let's, let's take another example. Imagine that I own the restaurant. And I learned that people eat 50 bytes and pay $50, a dollar per bite on average. And I came to you and I said, because I like you so much and because we have some mutual friends, I'll charge you only 50 cents per bite, so half the price. And not only that, I'll charge you only for the bites you eat. The bites you don't eat, you don't need to pay me. So really good deal. Yeah. So I'll serve you your dish and I'll stand back and I'll take a little piece of paper and a, and a pen and every time you take a bite, I'll mark a little V on my notebook. And at the end of the meal, I'll charge you 50 cents per bite only for the bites you eat. Very, very efficient meal. How much fun do you think it will be? It will be quite miserable. <laughs> uh, because, because every time when you take a bite, you, you, will, you will just feel that you're paying money. Sometimes when I teach my students about the psychology of money, I bring pizza and I charge people 25 cents per bite. And, and what happens? People eat huge bites. They eat such huge bites that they, fi- they, they basically suffer from the whole, the whole process. And, and, you know, in the name of trying to make 
the, the bytes more efficient and get more value out of each byte, they, they suffer. So, so if you think about this, what, what it means is that when we pay, we don't just think about payment. Uh, we, 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 when we pay, it's not just about the amount of money. It's also about whether we're thinking about money or not. So when we're consuming something, enjoying uh, a sip of wine, a bite of a pizza or something, at that moment, if we don't think about money, we enjoy it more. And if we think about how much money we're paying for it, we're enjoying it less. And, well, you, remind and of course, me, you, you remind me of my friends that they go to dinner with you and they say, oh, I'm all in. And then they realize the bill is higher than what they expected. And then they leave and they remind you. I have family members that do this and they remind you about how much they overpaid for that meal. And in some ways, like you're like, oh, wait, we came in to an agreement that you'd want to eat and maybe pay a little more. But then they, mm-hmm. they knickknack and sort of like undervalue like postmortem that the meal wasn't worth what they had expected. Yeah. You know, it's like but- kind of like the, the specifics you're talking about really, it's like you... I mean, it's like a zero-sum game, right? Like, you, Is that what you're saying? Like, how, I'd love to know well, more about the psychology of, of this. Obviously, yeah. So, so, so two things. One is that um, so, so money is not just about spending, right? So we, we for example, uh, very few people know how much their electricity bill is. Uh, but because we don't pay attention, it comes automatically from our checking account at the end of the month. But we're very aware of how much gasoline costs. Because we stand next to the gas pump and we observe that uh, as, uh, as as our tank gets gets full and full. So, so, so the psychology, the pain of paying, basically say that um, it's it's all about attention. And if we don't pay attention, we feel okay about paying. And if we pay attention, we we're not okay about about paying. We we suffer more from this. There. The other thing that, that you mentioned is basically, it, it sounded to me like you talk about people who are stingy. Right. And, and that's, by the way, a, a terrible disease. It's, it's just terrible. I, I have a friend who is stingy, and uh, it is just, it is just uh, painful. Um, and, and, you know, I actually feel bad for him because I know he is suffering as well. Uh, well, I, it gets in the. I have a friend that's stingy, and it gets in the way of his quality of enjoying life because you got to dinner and you find that you have paid for a couple extra drinks and it's all in the wash. But then you go out for another drink, maybe a couple nights later, and then he splits the bill up fifty fifty, and you're like, yeah. the whole experience of friendship is that there's really no one's keeping track. We're just doing good things to help each other. Yeah, so so this this friend uh, uh, of mine who is who is very stingy and suffering from this, um, she she goes to dinner with friends, and she can't enjoy it because she keeps track of everything that everybody's eating, and she knows they'll ask her to split the bill later, and she'll pay for their part and and she can't enjoy anything she can't enjoy anything because 
she feels bad about spending on herself. She bad, feels bad that other people are spending on themselves. She knows that she'll have to pay part of this. And she's really just just miserable. And, and you know, she grew up in a difficult uh, house. Uh, her parents lost all their money, so she has some kind of uh, historical reasons to to worry about being stingy. But her relationship with money is so difficult that she basically kind of has to... Um, be continuously aware all the time and of course her family members suffer as well uh, about this so so anyway going back this, <laughs> no i like the side I, you're giving it's like therapy for dealing with my friend yeah i'm not and, alone and thinking there's there is some by, suffering by the way, that goes on by the way um i think what you need to do with your friends is to just recognize that they're suffering a lot from money sure you know you're suffering from time to time by being their friends but if somebody is stingy their lives are actually quite hard. Right. And you should decide to either accept them with that quality and never ask them to pay for anything because it will be more miserable or stop being their friends. But hoping that somehow they'll start paying or they'll start caring uh, uh, for, for this is, is just un, not going to happen. Well, it's like kind of what it is with friends in general. It's like you accept them... Yeah. For everything, or you move on. Otherwise, it's not. It's a fruitless journey. Yeah, and and some and some things you can uh, you can accept more easily, and some things are harder. Uh, and and stinginess, I think, it's something that people um, don't don't see. They don't see the reasons for the stinginess, right? It's a, it's a little hard hard to do. If you think about um, kind of my my injury. My injury is very visible, so it's easy for people to see the injury. But people that have neurological injuries, for example, uh, much harder for people to sympathize and empathize with that. Um, so but but going back to the to the issue we, we kind of uh, talked about the psychology of money as a sidebar, the, the question is what what is the nature of our irrationality? And I think the nature of our rationality that, that we were kind of designed to deal with nature in a short-term way, kind of survive another day, escape a predator, find food in a very, very different environment. And now we're in a very different environment. And the question is, what, what is now uh, a good key to survival? And it's not the same. Uh, so now uh, we need to do uh, very different things, um, but but we're not equipped for this. So then, and and I want to get let's talk about your book right now, your your new book, mm -hmm. because you've touched on a few points about money, which you cover in Payoff, which is the hidden logic that shapes our motivation and is all about your irrationality, yours thinking. And what I loved about your opening introduction was that you told that story about uh, the burns that you suffered when you were younger and, you know, kind of re reliving those memories with, uh, you know, so another fam uh, family you met where the mother sadly lost a child to burns and then the second child that was in the fire actually lost, um, had to go through similar therapy that you did. And then you yeah. talk about motivation. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd love to touch on kind of like how people destroy motivation. Yeah, so so the, the, the point of, of payoff is really that there are two things we don't understand in motivation. Uh, 
The first one is we don't understand pleasure, and the second one is that we don't understand money or reward. And uh, when when I the, the opening example about not understanding motivation is that we have these very simple uh, pleasure maximizing idea. That's saying you know we're, we're all about pleasure. We want to maximize our pleasure. But if you look at what people actually do, you look at the things that we strive for, we, we try. Um, these are things like running marathons and climbing mountains and helping other people. The, the things that kind of fulfill our day and people try to achieve are, are really very far from the simple version of pleasure. They're very different from sitting on the beach uh, drinking a mojito. Right. They, there are things that involve all kinds of, of complexity. So, so the, first, the first point is that we need to recognize that the nature of pleasure is, is much more complex and much more interesting than what we usually, usually think. And then the second part uh, is, is, is about money. It's about the fact that often we think that people hate working. And all we need to do is to give them some some money, and we need to reorganize uh, their money in a way that would uh, get them to get out of their, um, you know, lazy ass and, <laughs> and, and just do something. Right. Uh, but but the reality is that, that do, do there's have, lots do of you things. Have, do you have kids? I do have kids. Yeah, it sounds like the the dad of my my dad saying stuff like that. <laughs> I actually don't say this to my kids, um, but maybe they're, they're too young uh, at this point. But, but, but if you think about this, this idea that people hate what they're doing, if you look at most of the activity around us, this is not the activity of people who hate what they're doing and are only doing it for money. Right. right? When, when you look at, at people who produce uh, music and art, and software and podcast and people uh, write and invent. I mean, it's it's just this. This is not a picture of people who hate what they're doing, and the only thing that they're doing it for is is money. Right. So, so I think we miss both the the pleasure. We don't understand uh, what 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 is the the true underlying characteristic of pleasure. And then we don't understand that what people are driving toward is not just about money. We want things like recognition and and we want things like a sense of accomplishment and a sense of contribution and we care about other things. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, because we don't understand pleasure and because we don't understand how to reward people, we often do things that backfire. So... Think about something like the no child left behind policy. Uh, we, we created this policy and teachers now get to stand to gain a small amount of money if their kids do very well on these end of year exams. And, and you could say, oh, that's great. We're taking all of the motivations they had before, but plus they can make a few hundred dollars at the end of the year. But actually what happened is that it decreases motivation. Why does it decrease motivation? Because all of a sudden, the teachers are saying to themselves, I was interested in doing this for the purpose of educating a new generation 
in helping kids and being an educator and caring about where the country is going and so on. And now all you're telling me is that the difference between my kids doing very well in the exam and not doing so well is $400. You know what? I'm just not that interested. And we've taken right. <laughs> an amount of money and actually made people care less rather than care than care more. And there's lots of examples like this where we don't understand how how things are and unintentionally, not because of bad intentions, uh, make things make things worse. And so when you talk about uh, in your book, kind of like the joy of making something, um, in general, like people are always finding purpose in what they do with work. And that's often why people quit their job is because they don't have that purpose. Like, where do people find the joy? Like, what have you seen from research? And just th for the sake of making something that, like some traits yeah. that people feel like. So, so the answer is that, uh, thankfully, it's incredibly easy to find uh, joy if people would just allow us. Um, part of it is autonomy, feeling that you can be control your destiny. Uh, part of it is recognition from others. Part of it is helping others. Um, credit. Uh, is very important. You know, if you look at journalists, just the fact that they get their byline, their name and, and next to the, the story is incredibly motivating. Like, think about it. Why why do we give journalists their name next to whatever they're doing and we don't give anybody who is designing, I don't know, my, my laptop? Why isn't there like a little place where all the names <laughs> of all the people that were involved in designing this laptop are, are written on in very, very tiny letters, right? Why don't we have something that people could just have their name uh, connected uh, to somewhere? And, and then I think what you're alluding to is we have these results about what we call the IKEA effect, where we find that when people create something, their love for it increases dramatically, right? The actual, the act of, being actively creating something, actually actively involved in something, it dramatically changes um, how how much in love people are with what they have. And so, when you're someone working, like you talk about millennials right now, and you teach a lot of younger students, and at Duke, like people want more purpose in their careers and where their directions are going. And it's a generational thing in that respect, but also everyone wants purpose, correct? Everybody wants purpose. We, we actually don't find that the young generation uh, want purpose more than, than older people. I think that uh, what, what happens is that the young generation uh, just recognizes that there's more opportunities for purpose at work. So if, if you think about a few generations back, maybe not one generation, but maybe two or three, Lots of jobs couldn't have purpose, right? It was or you know not not a deep, not a, a big purpose. Uh, but but as we move more and more to the knowledge economy, uh, there's more opportunity uh, for for basically individual individual work. So you know if if we were all kind of doing mechanical work, right? Somebody was a a car mechanic and somebody was an air conditioning mechanic and somebody was a chair mechanic and somebody was assembling tables and so on. How much of your own identity 
could be expressed in what you uh, what you do. Not so much. But now the range of choices of different professions and jobs is so broad that your individual um, personality and ideology and identity and therefore also your pride can come to play in a very, very different way. So I think that it's not, you know, often we think of things as a generational effect, that generation, you know, the new generation wants X and, and we in the old generation didn't want that. I don't think it's necessary that the new generation is different. It's that the opportunities that the new generation is presented with are, are more interesting in this, in this way. Right, there's some more self-awareness or awareness about what's out there? But, but, but basically, there's, there's, there's more opportunities, right? So if you say um, 50 years ago, 80 years ago, how, who had the opportunity for, job, for their job to be part of their identity? was not that easy. But now we have many more jobs that can tap more your your identity. All of a sudden, you, there's more variety of jobs, and they can fit more individuals, and they can um, basically fit their individual skills and so on. So, so, you know, the reason that you meet somebody today, and one of your first questions is, what do you do, is because the question of what do you do, this choice of what have you chose to do with your career is, is so informative. It tells you so much. Eight years ago, what would it tell you? You know, somebody who became a carpenter versus somebody who became a car mechanic, what would it tell you about their individual choices? But now, somebody who's deciding to be a blogger and somebody who's deciding to be a yoga instructor and somebody decided to be a programmer tells you a lot about them as individuals. Right. It's all about identity-based work for people now. That's right. More That's so right. than it ever. Has it has many, many more opportunities to tap our identity. Um, I love that. Well, that's a really good note to end on because uh, personality, identity, it's like you want to necessarily, like people looking for work or redefining their careers, often identity is one of the bigger drivers around how you fulfill your business aspirations. Mm -hmm. um, well, cool. Well, everyone needs to buy this book and needs to be a number one bestseller on Amazon. And, uh, <laughs> it's called Payoff, The Hidden Logic That Shapes Our Motivation. It's danarielli.com, A-R-I-E-L-Y.com. And also you have a slew of other books, TED Talks, in the tens and tens of millions of views. Um, so is that, is that it? Is that anything else, anywhere else to find you? Um, no, that's uh, that's about that's the best place. And thank you very much for this uh, time and opportunity to chat. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Okay, take care. Mm -hmm.